The field of mental health counseling continues to grow. A trip to the therapist was once considered a taboo activity, reserved for people with only the most explicit mental health disorders. Nowadays, it's considered a perfectly normal part of individual growth that many people not only participate in, but also openly discuss. Over the past few decades, individuals have become increasingly likely to seek out a therapist. And while severe mental illness will always be present, the issues for which most people see a therapist are often considered to be less extreme, such as life transitions, loss of loved ones, or anxiety. However, this growing popularity is not without its detractors. Some within the church assert that the Bible is the only thing needed for our personal growth and well-being. Any other method for growth besides God's word is manufactured by humankind, and thus considered unnecessary at best, or dangerous at worst. What relationship should Christians have with mental health counseling? Are there any aspects of Christianity that would push us towards embracing mental health practice, or are the two diametrically opposed? How does spiritual formation interact with mental health? Do these ideas represent two approaches to the same goal, or do they serve separate purposes? Is the Bible the only thing necessary for personal growth in Christians, or should we embrace modern, scientifically-based methods? All that and more on this edition of Questions from the Media. Questions from the Pew, the intersection of faith and culture. We're a forum for the discussion on the issues that are ruminating in the minds of churchgoers, but that are often not raised from the pulpit. Here, no inquiry is off limits. Too long has the church shied away from grappling with tough questions and nuanced issues. No longer. We're your hosts. I'm Riker Zalameta. I'm Lucas Manning. Hey, great to, great to be here. Yeah. Thanks for listening. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And today we are joined by a special guest. She's been a guest on the show before. No stranger. Uh, her name is Ruth Nathaniel. You're a better half, Luke. Oof. Would you say that? Far better, far better. <laughs> it's more like it's more like 75-25. Uh, wow. <laughs> She's the 75%, just to be clear. Yeah, this, sorry. Yeah, okay. sorry well, <laughs> yeah. I guess unless we're talking about like mass, I would say I have a little more mass. Okay, anyway. Okay. Well... Ruth earned her Bachelor of Arts in Science uh, with a focus on neuroscience and ethics in the life sciences from the University of Guelph. She also earned her MA in Clinical Mental Health Counseling from Moody Theological Seminary in Chicago. She is a psychotherapist, a licensed professional counselor. We are glad you are with us today, Ruth. That sounded very. That sounded very radio personality. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for joining us. Yeah, no, Mm -hmm. thank you for having me. This is exciting. Yes. Honestly, pumped to have you. She's been uh, perpetuating the sexy therapist stereotype, unfortunately. <laughs> this, <since> is, she... <laughs> this is highly inappropriate. Okay. I'll leave that up to the editor to decide whether he <laughs> yeah. wants to uh, keep whether that, that gets in. <laughs> oh, man. Well, today we are talking about um, mental health and faith. I don't know if that's mm-hmm. the title we're going to go with, but that's broadly the, the topic that we're tackling today. It's a definitely a, a little bit of a 
maybe a heavy topic, definitely one that's uh, um, rightfully so gotten a little bit more um, of a spotlight in the recent yeah. couple of decades, I guess. I think the perception has at least been getting less and less like taboo mm-hmm. in Christian circles, but yeah. it still still remains anyway, yeah. which I guess yeah. leads yeah. to the first question. Yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah, maybe that first question, do we see a stigma against mental health treatment as a whole, or is there a particular stigma within the Christian community of which the three of us are a part mm-hmm. and many of our listeners are a part? And if so, why? Yeah, so I think to answer that question, we should take a look at just a couple of statistics um, that might help shape where this conversation goes. Mm-hmm. Um, And honestly, it's encouraging because I think there has been a wealth of studies and surveys done in the last, I would say, five to seven years about mental health and the Christian community, especially in the U.S. Um, So all the studies that I've been pulling to pull some of these stats are based in the U.S., just for clarification. So the National Alliance on Mental Illness, um, or NAMI, Um, They do a lot of studies um, with really large population sizes, and they approximated that roughly 18% of adults in the U.S., so that's around 43, 44 million people, will experience mental illness in any given year. Um, And now, so that's just talking about Americans, right? American adults. Now we're going to get a little bit more specific in terms of Christian American adults. Um, Lifeway Research surveyed a thousand Protestant um, pastors, of which three out of four said they knew at least one family member, family, um, friend, or congregant who had been diagnosed with bipolar disorder. 74% of the 1,000 pastors surveyed said that they knew someone with clinical depression. Um, And 57% of those pastors said they knew at least three people in that circle. Um, who fell in the clinical depression category. Um, So just based on those two, right, one is looking at just the broader American population, one is looking at the Christian population. Um, We can just say that mental illness is pretty much prevalent in the U.S. Mm -hmm. And even more specifically, especially with the Lifeway research piece, that the church is saturated with it. Um, And, you know, based on that study, you would think, okay, you know, So many pastors who were surveyed said that they knew people with mental illness, um, you know, whether that was diagnosed or at least met the criteria for Mm -hmm. it. Um, You know, maybe the church is, you know, stepping up and responding to it appropriately. But sadly, that same Lifeway survey basically showed a real disconnect um, between, you know, the pastor's relationship with mental illness and how their churches actually approach the issue. Um, Mm -hmm. And so... Once again, just thinking of that same survey, only a quarter of those churches have a plan to actually assist families. And worse still is only roughly 20% of the families or congregation members um, as a part of those churches are even aware that their church has some sort of resource or plan to help them in terms Mm -hmm. of mental illness. So we're seeing a huge divide between the need and the response to the need, um, which is not to say that churches aren't doing things. Um, I believe, um, let me think here, like 60% of those pastors were saying they had at least a list of resources, like here are some counselors in the area, um, or here Mm. are some programs that we know of in the community to help you. Um, But it's 
sad because these resources are not well distributed within the congregation. So people yeah. who are in need and this is generally speaking, not everyone fits into this description, but when you are struggling with mental illness or you have a family member who is, um, asking for help can sometimes feel a little more difficult because it's hard to explain sometimes, um, the way that you're mm -hmm. feeling. Um, you don't even know what you need sometimes when you're in that space. Mm -hmm. Um, and so when someone's going through that, it's even harder to reach out, um, when you're not even like aware that this stuff exists. Mm -hmm. Um, so, um, you know, we can just talk even just about that in and of itself, but I thought, you know, okay, based on this, how has this like impacted church membership, um, or attendance, I guess, maybe mm -hmm. not membership. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, this was really sad to me because, um, that study basically said that around 65% of congregants who are, um, you know, family members of those with mental illness and 65 and 60% of those with the mental illness, like they really want their church to be talking about this from the pulpit. Mm. Um, but only 66% of fasters speak to their church once or not at all on the subject on mm. an annual basis. Um, and so this really does translate into people leaving the church yeah. um, or being deeply yeah. unsatisfied with how their church is caring for them yeah. um, and their mental right. illness. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, this is not a, a huge number, but I think it's significant um, if anyone is leaving the church because of mm -hmm. this, something that is controllable. Yeah, um, sure. So 10% of adults with mental illness have said that they've either changed churches because of how their church has responded to their mental illness mm -hmm. or a little higher, 13% have just stopped attending altogether mm. um, and haven't been able to reconnect. And that might be to, due to a variety of factors. Sure. Um, but yeah, I, I think yeah. Uh, that might be... Yeah, no, that's that's interesting to bring up. I mean, one, because, I mean, that's part of the reason why this show has started is, you know, kind of the, the absence sometimes <clears throat> between, you know, the issues people are dealing with in their lives mm -hmm. or in the public arena and then, you know, what's obviously brought up from the pulpit. Mm -hmm. um, you know, sometimes it's just, it's just ir like not relevant. So it's like, mm -hmm. why am I here when this yeah. isn't actually touching mm -hmm. my life? Would, um, oh, would you say that, is it a matter of the pastorate being just woefully unprepared and undertrained mm -hmm. for that sort of ministry? Because, like, the the idea that and maybe on this side of things, it seems like it should be a given, but, like, the idea that the mental health of a person is a part of holistic well-being, mm -hmm. um, like... Yeah, I, I wonder how many pastors are just really unprepared and if seminaries are are doing a good enough job at preparing pastors for that kind of ministry. And you might be able to speak into that really well because, you you know, you did your MA at a seminary. Yeah. Yeah, so that's the interesting thing because I think there is, like, now a trend um, in churches that, once again, I think well-resourced churches who have the funds to do this are able to actually do this. Um, they're starting to bring on more um, counselors onto staff, or they're able to get their um, staff trained by mental health professionals on, mm -hmm. hey, this is how to identify if your congregation member is um, struggling with depression or anxiety or um, you know, a certain level of trauma that 
you're ill-equipped to um, minister them through. Um, and then, you know, you can funnel them to a professional counselor, for example, or a treatment program, whatever it might be. Um, so some churches are doing that. And I've seen churches um, talk about it from the pulpit. Um, my church back home in Toronto has talked about it. Um, I've attended a church in Chicago that has talked about it and has been well-resourced um, and connected members to that sort of help um, and so forth. So it's available and it's becoming more available. The question is, yeah, I mean, some pastors, I don't I don't think it actually crosses their radar. Um, and whether that's an issue of, you know, how are seminaries training up their students, I, I really don't know. Hmm. Um, because things are changing, like culture um, changes and shifts. And you guys have talked a lot about this. This is part of the podcast. Um, Indeed. But, I mean... I think it would have to be woeful ignorance at this point in time in mm. 2021 to not be addressing mental health yeah. um, because you don't even have to be well connected on social media to see the impacts of mental illness. Um, you know, mm-hmm. you know, talk to the congregation enough and someone knows someone if they're not that someone who is dealing with it. Sure. So then kind of just keeping with that same track of the church's place and caring Mm -hmm. for uh, for people in this way so then how does mental health treatment square with the idea that this idea that all you need is the bible or all you need is jesus the whole all i need is yeah me and my bible me and jesus and that's all i need like are they mutually exclusive or yeah yeah and that's something i mean i've heard that from a lot of like especially like just growing up like the bible has everything that you need for right living Mm. Um, so it's kind of it's not that these other sciences like are necessarily evil they're just unnecessary like really like if you if you read the bible and like ingest it how you're supposed to like your life will get like you will figure it out and like you'll be healthy or whatever so yeah i i've heard that all over the place yeah um yeah, I don't know. I, I, I didn't grow up hearing that. <laughs> um, and I think even more so, even after seminary, I, I think my view has become even more cemented in the fact that, yeah, I don't actually think I just need the Bible. And I don't think a single person can just get by on the Bible or Jesus, if you will. Um, because, I, I mean, did Jesus have the Bible? No. The Old Testament. I mean, okay, but we're talking about the Bible including A version the of the Old Testament. Yes. You yes, know? true, true. Yeah. I mean, yeah, he had some part of the word, if you will. Yeah. Sure. Um, but I mean that that is deeply like isolating, I think, for a, a lot of people. Um just because, you know, if we just okay, if we just take like a very broad look at things i'm gonna come at it from a more secular perspective and then you guys can have a field day with this next part more of a biblical perspective because you're the experts here um so first like the secular kind of perspective or the more um one that's rooted in psychology some of us have probably heard of maslow's hierarchy of needs right um so you know we have this if you can picture like a, a pyramid right um as we go from the bottom of the hierarchy upwards um, the needs become more and, you know, more and more 
progressing, but you have to have that bottom one first to reach the next level. Mm-hmm. So at the very bottom, right, we've got the phys- physiological <clears throat> needs. So food or clothing. The next level, safety. And in today's modern terms, maybe that could translate to job security. Next level, love and belonging. So friendship. The next one, self-esteem. And then the very top one, self-actualization. So, you know, understanding and achieving your full potential in life, which you know, actually can include like creative pursuits and things like that. According to the Beatles, love is all you need. Though. <laughs> Sorry. Well, Great. Yeah. now we're gonna have, now we're gonna have to pay royalties. <laughs> yeah, because we mentioned that. <laughs> um, and so you know, as I said, right at the very, you have to attend to the very bottom level before you can attend to the next one. Gotta get fed before you care about friends. Absolutely. Yes. You you can't be a present friend when your stomach is rumbling and you're mm-hmm. ill and you don't have a roof over your head yeah. or shelter. Um, and so I I always go back to this story because I think this is the one where it, it really like spoke to me when I was kind of going through my, my own like mental health journey. Um, and then, you know, as I entered seminary, we would sometimes talk about this um, moment in the Bible. So it's you know, Elijah in First Kings, right? He's just had, like, this ultimate, like, spiritual high, um, you know, has just shown Jezebel and Ahab, like, you know, what his God can do. But then... This is after the narrative where uh, he competes with the prophets yes. of Baal and yes. then the fire comes them. down. Yes, yes. Lights literally. Lights the altar and then they... Yeah, they slaughter them. Yeah, yeah, literally. Yes. So now we, you know, shift forward and he's literally running, like, f- like for his life from Queen Jezebel, and then he's, like, mm-hmm. utterly burnt out. And basically, you know, he's asking, you know, God to really just, like, take his life, take this, you know, burden from him. And he comes off, quite frankly, like, depressed. And God's initial response um, is basically just to feed him twice. He gives him mm-hmm. two meals through an angel. Um, and so to me, that just speaks volumes because it's like, here you have this moment, you know, Elijah, as I said, was on, like, a total high that wave comes down, he's running for his life, he's scared, he's exhausted, and he's just like, I'm done, I'm at the end of my rope, I don't know what else to do. And I think for some people, if someone said, I'm at the end of my rope, I don't know what to do, they would say, you know, why don't you just, you know, pray more, fasting might be helpful to get you, you know, like, right with God, get you focused on what's going on in your life. But, I mean, God is literally like, I think you are malnourished and you need rest, and so I'm going to feed you. So, I mean, to yeah. you guys, I'm sure, would have more insight into that and what's going on. But that that was kind of where I saw a very real biblical example of God attending to literally his basic needs before trying to go any further. Sure. No, I think that, yeah, I mean, that's helpful. Um, I guess to me, the the like philosophy of the Bible has like every, every or has the best advice for every situation is like, I agree in like kind of a principle outlook. Like, yeah, I think you think you can apply the principles of the Bible to every situation. Um, but a lot of times the problems that we face are, are specific and specifically meant or uh, especially mental illness. It's like, you know, there might be past traumas in your life that you need to process. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's, you need someone to walk you through that, you know what mm-hmm. I'm saying? And, and how mm-hmm. to, how to do that, I think. Um, so I don't think that it's, I don't think the Bible is trying to present itself as exhaustive of all knowledge that we could ever use in our lives. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's where, yeah, 
I think the Bible is a different type of knowledge, which is uh, obviously also needed. But uh, but yeah, I think uh, mental health counseling uh, solves a need that the mm-hmm. Bible doesn't necessarily isn't necessarily setting out to solve. Yeah. Right. And I would even just say, like, in my own work with clients, it it is very much rooted in Maslow's hierarchy of needs. People sometimes think, you know, we're going to get into counseling. You do your first intake session and the next session that you have with your therapist is going to be like the hard, heavy hitting stuff. And we're talking about childhood trauma and whatever. But most of the time, and I would think this is best practice, frankly, um, no matter how um, mentally ill the client is, you have to first establish like, are they taking care of themselves in the basic way Mm -hmm. so that they're in a stable place to actually start doing the psychological interventions? Mm -hmm. Um, And so a lot of my time actually in the beginning is spent, you know, assessing their lifestyle, you know, what what do you do for fun? Who is your support network? Um, What gives you the inspiration to wake up every day? Do you eat McDonald's every day? (laughs) Sure. (laughs) Is McDonald's your treat for the week? I don't know. That's value number two holding your (laughs) beer. For all our listeners, I'm down to one McDonald's uh, (laughs) serving a week. (laughs) Progress. I love McDonald's. Here's the thing. Don't don't sleep on their chicken sandwich. Yes, their new chicken sandwich. Just to give you some context, listener, when we were in college, Lucas and I would go to McDonald's pretty nearly every night. (laughs) Unbelievable. At like 1130. Here's the thing. Everything in moderation, you know, just once a day. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, gosh. Here's the thing that I see as a problem with the whole idea that all you need is the Bible, right? Is the, it's asking the Bible to do, dare I say, too much. It's like using a hammer to screw in a a, a, a screw instead of using right. it. As, you can do it. It'll just be difficult and not really work very well. Right. <laughs> it's just, it's it's not using it in the way that it has yeah. declared itself to be used for or useful for. And so on your end as the interpreter, you're going to be doing mental and theological gymnastics to fit it into the peg that you're trying to fit it into Um, and it's unfair to you it's unfair to the bible um, to to approach it in that manner Mm -hmm. Um, so i wouldn't say maybe they're you know they're mutually exclusive but we in in interpreting the bible and in approaching faith and this issue of mental health you need to be clear on on what you know at least for the bible what it was written for um, and mm-hmm. and that's gonna color your yeah your presuppositions as you tackle these important and nuanced issues. I've heard um, 
and I'm not sure if it was original to him, but I've heard uh, Professor and Pastor Ernest Gray. Um, he was doing an interview about, uh, and he and they they started talking about mental health, but he mentioned something to the effect, and again, I don't know if this is original to him or if he got it from somewhere else, but he talked about how the gospel does all the heavy lifting, yes, but in many contexts, in many situations, mental health counseling brings it to the finish line. Hmm. What do you think about that? Wow, that's a serious uh, <laughs> thing. To say. I mean, wow. Um, uh, well, it was maybe... addressing the... the the, the, the stigma question where like people don't want to get mental health counseling because it's it's seen as a lack of faith oh. sort of thing, from what I remember I see and the way I see it I feel like he's saying like the scripture like sets your worldview like so it does the heavy lifting for like how you view the world but then like mental health stuff comes in and like makes it live out in your life better I don't know that's what I imagine him saying you know what I'm saying yeah. like it's the Bible more shapes your worldview, whereas mental health counseling helps you with like specific mm. living that out. Yeah, I think a good quote um, in response to that quote <laughs> uh, comes from the book Understanding the Enneagram by uh, Rizzo and Hudson. Um, and basically, they're just saying psychology without spirituality is arid and ultimately meaningless, while mm. spirituality without grounding in psychological work leads to vanity and illusions. Um, and so I, I think there is a there's something to be said about that because I, I think they're right on the money with that because they, they do work together. And I think I've seen it in in my own life um, when I, you know, get pretty carried away with like psychological work that isn't actually grounded in any sort of spiritual dimension um, and just kind of this uh, wall that I hit because I think you know, psychological interventions take you to a certain point. And this is not even talking about spirituality that's exclusively Christian. Um, you know, we can all, ag- we all agree in the mental health community that as holistic beings, there is a spiritual like component to the human. Mm. Um, so whether that spiritual component actually subscribes to a particular belief system or not, um, that doesn't really matter. We have to acknowledge our our inerrant spirituality as humans mm-hmm. um and so when we don't do that as the quote is saying the psychological work gets you so far and then it's meaningless mm-hmm. now on the other side of that quote right spirituality without the grounding in the actual psychological work the hard work really looking inwards at yourself it really does lead to vanity and illusions i think a lot of us like to think that we're better than we are you know <laughs> You know, I am a friend of God or whatever, you know, like I'm just saying, like calling out Michael Gunger. No, I, I mean, no, I love the song. I'm just, yeah, that was the first one that came to mind. I'm with you. Um, Royal yeah, I don't know. I, yeah. There can be just a little bit of an inflation of the ego. Um, I find. Yeah. It's that, a, yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, uh, it's something that I had heard a couple of years ago and it's stuck with me ever since, but and it wasn't specifically about this topic, but it was something else. But it applies so much. It applies to so many other topics. But Christians living in an over-realized eschatology. Mm. Where we, theologically speaking, we are at an in-between time. Uh, you know, Christ has finished his work on the cross. His atoning work is 
that, that's all done, yes. And so we look forward still, though, to the full benefits of what all of that really entails, right? So the kingdom of God has been inaugurated on earth, but one day we will see it fully and clearly and as a whole. Um, mm. But right now we're in the in-between. And I think a lot of times what happens is Christians live, again, in that over-realized eschatological time where they view things and they they view their world through the lens of as if the kingdom in its entirety has already come and is already here and they enjoy the benefits fully of that where if you apply it to it different like so they apply it obviously to again to specifically this issue right so you know christ has done away with all that stuff so i don't need clinical mental health counseling counselors yeah. do that because all i right. need is jesus and he'll he'll fix this but we don't apply that we don't use that same hermeneutic um and you we don't use that same method of application in other aspects where you yeah. know if we say jesus said i'll provide for your needs right, right. in the bible but we still work for food right. so there's a logical still disconnect lock our doors there. at night <laughs> right so why aren't we living in that right over you know in that eschatological truth in those areas of life and are right. specifically using it for this area of mental sure. health. Right. Right. Yeah. It's just the world we live in. It's not, yeah, it's not like set right yet. Mm-hmm. We have that hope, but mm. yeah. yeah. So we should use the tools that, I mean, cause that's really, uh, <laughs> I, I forget who I had this conversation with. Maybe it was you actually, but it was like, you know, once everything's set right or whatever, like what are doctors going to do? Or like, you know, what are mental health counselors going to do? Cause it's yeah. like, congratulations. Like, you know, everyone's supposedly good to go. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, which I think is great. But yeah. anyway, one, so one of my favorite, sorry, go ahead. No, no. Just pointing to the fact that like, there are practices that we need now that, you know, if everything was set straight, we wouldn't need, but the mm-hmm. fact is, it, you know, the world is messed up. So we do right. need them. Yeah. One of my favorite uh, quotes here, man. Okay, so I just pulled up a book from my bookshelf, but I use this once in a sermon. And the uh, for those of you who don't know, I'm a big fan of not only Lord of the Rings, which we've talked about on the show before, mm-hmm. um, but also Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia. Mm-hmm. And Let's go. in The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, uh, there's a story. Part of the story is just the change in character of Eustace Clarence Scrub. He was a he was a jerk of a kid, and he gets turned into a dragon. Spoiler alert: If you haven't read the book, he gets turned into a dragon, gets rescued by Aslan the lion, and turned back into a boy. And the the uh, the narrator goes, and maybe I'll just read this short little paragraph, but. It says, it would be nice and fairly nearly true to say that from that time forth, Eustace was a different boy. To be strictly accurate, he began to be a different boy. He had relapses. There were still many days when he could be very tiresome, but most of those I shall not notice. The cure had begun. Hmm. So that that has always stuck out to me right like christ's transformative work yes it's it's over and done and it's it's nothing that you have to do on your end but it's still a process in a lot of areas of life and i think in especially in mental health it's one of those processes that you still 
go through as a even as a Christian. Let's go see us just yeah. speaking into our lives. <laughs> Good old Clive. <laughs> Clive um, Staples. Clive Staples. <laughs> yeah. uh, maybe we can move into a, a get to know your guest segment. This is, it's basically just get to know your guest. So it's five questions. Okay. You ready for it, Ruth? Absolutely. All right. Number one, coffee or tea? Ooh, tea. Oh. <laughs> what, this is what? Fun Actually, that that, that does that makes sense to me because you like drinking just hot water too. I do. So there's so I you like drink my, coffee every day. Though. I drink a cup of coffee every day, but I'm also you know my heritage is in Sri Lanka. <laughs> That's what I was gonna so say. You You're know. asking a question that is pulling her in two directions. I know. I'm like, damn, like <laughs> my people. <laughs> Salon tea. <laughs> I I do love black salon tea. That that is also a okay. good favorite. Yes. Yeah, so tea. Cool. All right, number two, most recent movie you've watched. It was I guess a that Marvel wasn't a question. one. <laughs> yeah. It was, uh, one? yeah, it was uh, Doctor Strange? No, 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 well, no, no. we did watch that one, but then. Which one was it? Uh, wait, I can remember. It was, Ca- Ca- no, it's not Captain America. <laughs> it's a robot, robot. Oh, Age of Ultron. <laughs> yeah. <There> we go. <laughs> We've been, honestly, I've just been obsessed with, marvel lately so you've been doing so okay so i'll answer that in two parts so if it was a movie that was of my own volition (laughs) it was uh it's messed up it was uh the netflix documentary the ripper on uh oh yeah it's it's a true crime documentary the problem is the movies that ruth chooses i can't watch because they're scary as all get i mean it's just life (laughs) (laughs) anyway it's fine (laughs) Oh, gosh. Number three, do you have any hidden or interesting talents? No, I don't. I don't have any hidden or interesting talents. I, like, I wish I could say, like, I could juggle or something, like, you know, really well, but I can't. Oh, I can make epically bad, uh, <laughs> uh, like, sound effect noises. Okay, okay. Here we go. So this is my... Uh, my so this is a wild, Western yeah. Western movie soundtrack. Okay, all right. Whoa! <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's going in the episode. <laughs> Literally. Yep. That's a great oh, solid sound effect. <laughs> Number four, you completed. This is getting a little bit more serious now. Oh. The, you completed your MA in clinical mental health counseling at Moody Theological Seminary in Chicago. What made you pursue that field of study in a mm. seminary context? Yeah. Um, so a couple of things. One, I would have to say when I was going through my own mental health journey leading up to um, applying for grad school, I just, I honestly, the, the church really helped me out. Um, I think the social support that I received really made my um, – my journey, like through depression and anxiety, a lot easier. Um, and that's the church I, I was referencing earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we're very open about mental health and support and whatever. So when I was thinking about going into this field, I I did feel this sort of um, like interest kind of pulling me. Like, you know, I could go to a secular program. That would be great. Um, but I think I would like something with a bit more of a... Um, with at least like an openness to discussing how like faith plays into it or 
you know, diving into how like Christian specific spirituality Mm. um, can aid in the mental health process. Um, So, yeah, so that was kind of the main reason. And I got connected to a friend through the church who had already um, started at Moody um, and she was from Toronto. And so got in touch with her, asked her all my questions. And that was how I kind of decided that it was the right fit. Yeah. Mm. Cool. And one, one last question. Are you reading slash watching slash listening to something interesting right now? Yes. Um, so I literally just finished All You Could Ever Know by Nicole Chung. Um, and it's about her adoption story. Um, Is that a, she, a book? Yeah. Okay. Um, it, she's Korean-American, mm-hmm. was adopted by um, a white American couple, and it's really just her story, um, kind of piecing together her identity um, in an evangelical like kind of context. Mm. You know what? Actually, I take back evangelical in a Christian context, mm. um, and just like how all those things kind of merge together and clouded and amplified different mm. parts of her. Sure. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. Cool. Well, thanks for humoring us in those, <laughs> yeah. in those five questions. <laughs> I guess we'll we'll. I'll ask this. Can you see aspects of Christianity or the practice of Christian faith that lend itself to mental health practices or just mental, good mental health in general? Yeah. Um, And I have kind of said this throughout the conversation, but, you know, we know mental health to be holistic um, and we can kind of think of it as something that is the coming together of different facets of a person's life, right? Um, So some of that might be genetics, environment, nurturing, possible trauma early on in life, what are their current coping strategies, perceived meaning, spirituality, etc. And so for sure that spiritual component is going to be very important. Um, And it doesn't really matter what faith someone subscribes to, but since the question is more about Christianity, I'll go in that direction. Um, I, I've been reading a little bit of Richard Rohr's work, um, and he likes to talk a lot about, um, the desert mothers and fathers, um, the early, you know, Christian movement. Um, and he said in one of his books, I don't really remember which one, um, he said faith was a lifestyle before it became a belief system. And so for those early Christians, um, prayer was a lot different than I think we, uh, practice it today um, and the way he kind of broke it down was um, and now Richard Rohr also has a background in um, like Catholic um, ministry as well so um, if you're Catholic and listening this might um, ring a few bells um, there's a lot of focus on the sacred heart um, and uh, he was saying that um, you know the desert mothers and fathers would describe kind of prayer as more of like a process of bringing your thinking from your mind down into the heart, into the heart space. Um, so whether that is, you know, something um, like overwhelming love and care for someone um, um, or something like resentment or anger, whatever it is that enters your mind um, where, you know, now the modern kind of commentary piece would be where the internal dialogue can start um, and you can start going into your spirals, if you will, when you're left alone to your own thoughts for too long. Um, so When that thought enters your mind, um, you should practice the movement of moving that thought 
directly into your heart space and hold that feeling or that thought with silence um, and reject kind of like that temptation to like either judge or make some sort of explanation um, for why you feel the way that you feel um, and just like hold it as what it is. Um, and he was just saying, you know, when we were looking at something like resentment or anger towards someone, for example, you know, when you're feeling that strong feeling, when you bring it down into that heart space where you start isolating it away from judgment and explaining away why you're justified in feeling this way, um, literally it's like uh, letting the, the physical body kind of just like hold that thought and that feeling. Um, and I think that can be helpful because that starts creating some distance. Um, sometimes we realize that things aren't as big of a deal as we think they are in the moment, um, for example, which is not to say you dismiss everything you've ever felt before, but sometimes it, it does give you some perspective to have a little bit of separation from what you're feeling. So he was just explaining that sometimes prayer is literally just moving what is cognitively entering your mind into your heart space. Mm. Um, and that was what it might have looked for the desert mothers and fathers and i think that's helpful um because i've seen sort of a similar kind of practice in modern mental health interventions we have this exercise called um the wise mind um and basically um it, usually it, it's helpful when you have like a whiteboard with your client they're explaining how they've been feeling or a situation and literally you divide the board into three columns the first on let's just say on the left side is going to be labeled um the emotional mind and that's just literally using your emotions to describe the situation and how they feel you can be as reactive um as you want in the descriptions and the value of kind of going through the emotional mind piece is it really does tell you how you're doing in that moment on the far um, right of the board is going to be um the rational mind um which is literally fact-based. It's going to break down the situation into what happened, who did what, where was this, uh, what time was it, whatever. The rational mind is great too because it helps us have a big picture view. We're not getting muddied with how we felt in the moment. It's purely fact. But if we you know, take a second, each of those minds, the emotional mind, the rational mind, they're really missing key components. The emotional mind could do with some fact. The rational mind could do with some emotion. And that's where we come into the middle, which is called the wise mind. And as you know, as a therapist, you help the client basically integrate the two um, so that they're able to make an informed decision about how they want to proceed in the situation or how they want to reframe the thought um, from that moment um, going forward. You know, taking the facts, taking the emotions and welding them together in an appropriate way. Um, because for a lot of people, we can really swing hard into one of the others, like the rational or the emotional mind. And, uh, you know, that's a disservice to us um, because we really do need the facts and the feelings.
I don't, I don't think the, uh, just to touch on what you had already mentioned earlier, but like, the Bible doesn't shy away from the emotive aspect of human mm. existence, right? I mean, it's, I've heard it said before, like, the book of Psalms contains the breath of human emotions. You've got the highs of the praise and the ascent Psalms, and then just the utter despair of the lament Psalms, and even the anger of the imprecatory Psalms, where, yeah, but and it and it's all contained in one book, and that yeah. was, if I can put it in this in this way, it was, it was, it was the, um, it was an example of how a faithful follower of Yahweh dealt with all the emotions of human existence, mm. and I think there's a reason why they were all compiled in, into one book and became integral parts of, of, uh, of Jewish worship. Um, yeah, because yeah, the, the Bible doesn't shy from it. And, and it's, you, you can see it obviously in the narrative sections of scripture, like you were pointing out to, you know, with, with the prophet Elijah earlier, like it doesn't shy away from that sort of thing. And, mm. but, but yeah, as, as Christians, we we're, we're called to, to think differently uh, about it and I think the yeah it does like what you were saying it does a disservice to both the faithful and the faith in general to to not deal with these issues because it's seen as unfaithfulness or a lack of faith to admit that I need help because um, mm. what you were saying earlier look sometimes you don't know how to how to think through and feel through these emotions. And so you end up shoving these emotions under the rug, mm. under the guise of faith or trust. And, sure. it, and it rears its ugly head, you know, however long down the road because you didn't deal with it. Right. Um, whereas the Bible never commands us to dismiss our emotions, but right to, to take our anxieties as Paul says and take them to the Lord because he cares for us he doesn't sure. say just dismiss it and just actually express it and we have examples of that so as a follow-up to that then Ruth would would you say that there's a relationship between spiritual formation and mental health you know you know what does that look like how do they how do they differ yeah um I think I said yeah I guess broadly speaking uh, spiritual formation to me um, seems to be more focused on a, a person's um, indiv uh, individual kind of relationship with God. Um, but sometimes people are actually like coming into therapy because of their relationship with God. Um, you know, whether that is church hurt, um, more frankly, literal trauma that has been at the hands of the church or pastors. Um, and that can translate then into a view of of a God who hurts people or is okay with um, people hurting people. And so I don't it's I don't know if I'm really answering your question, but I feel like sometimes it's so closely like woven together, you know, someone's spirituality and their view of God and uh, why they're actually in therapy um, that sometimes it can feel almost just like, uh, like you can't really have one without the other in some cases. Um, 
And I'm literally just thinking about people who are coming in because of like religious trauma. What you're saying, it seems like is like it's a complicated relationship between the two and they can work together towards holistic like well-being. uh, But sometimes uh, at least like experiences in church can sometimes work counter to uh, which is the saddest Mm. thing in my in Mm -hmm. my opinion. Uh, I wonder, too, if it's a difference in like just nomenclature, like we call it different things. Mm-hmm. Um, but in in a, in a lot of areas, they're they're very similar, right? Because like, yeah, I th- yeah. So yeah, spiritual formation is a very Christian term, but a lot of it is understanding who you are as a son and daughter of God and who you are in Him, and a large part of that work in understanding who you are in God is understanding your past, understanding your your past hurts that sort of thing and that moves into mental health but mm-hmm. at the same time a lot of mental health can benefit as you were saying earlier ruth from the spiritual like side of things where it's it, otherwise it, it it was the word that you used earlier it's um oh yeah 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 it's arid and meaningless whereas yeah. you know spirituality without the mental work is vanity it, it can right. lead to vanity or mm-hmm. illusions yeah right. Yeah, so maybe it's more of a Venn diagram. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I would say so. It, this is kind of related, but it is funny because you know I was working at the, um, the Moody Theological um, Counseling Center mm-hmm. for a while, um, and it was interesting because the, like the types of, uh, like preconceived notions of what that would look like, uh, because of the name attached to the counseling center, um was always interesting especially like churches who would like certain churches would send uh, congregation members there uh with very specific uh ideas of what counseling should look like for their uh for their people and uh i honestly those are the times where i i delighted in my work the most because uh i felt like i could actually kind of kind of dismantle some of these like harmful um like assumptions of what counseling ought to be and you know like i'm not gonna bring out a bible every session like that was like the like some of the like church's understanding of what their people should be going through with me Mm -hmm. um it's moody bible's in their middle name (laughs) but you know you know i'm like grateful because like i don't know if this is sneaky or whatever but i'm grateful that it has that name because it attracts certain people um, and I think we wouldn't have been able to work with those types of people mm-hmm. had we not had a name like Moody Theological Seminary Counseling Center, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. Um, well, in many ways, it so can yeah. bridge the, like a, like a, a Moody, like can bridge the gap between what's often seen, what's often viewed as completely separate, like things, entities, yeah. or whatever you want to call it. So that, yeah, that, yeah, it would probably be beneficial. This is more of a practical focus mm-hmm. question as we start to bring this podcast to a close. Uh, but do you have any advice just for, I mean, either individuals who are resistant themselves or uh, people who have family members who are resistant to mental health treatment? Um, yeah, I guess. Do you have any advice for that? Um, and specifically, I'm thinking kind of on the basis of, you know, what we were talking about earlier of the Bible's kind of all you need, that that sort of thinking. Yeah. Um so a running joke with a lot of my uh, therapist friends is, and frankly, most therapists are in therapy because we also need it. Um, it's the running joke is 
a lot of us are in therapy to deal with people who aren't in therapy. Um, and I guess, you know, if we take a step back from that joke, it's, it's literally, you can't force anyone to do anything that they don't want to do. And there is this uh, process you have to go through where you have to make peace with the fact that you, only you can do the work for yourself. Um, and even if you think someone else is the problem that is creating all these issues for you, like, trust me, you've also got work to do. Um, and the work that you can do in counseling might actually help you navigate that difficult person or that difficult scenario that has been plaguing your life for a decade or whatever. Um, and I mean, like, as I said, we've all got the work to do. We've all got issues. You've got issues if you've spent five minutes, like, on this planet, frankly. Um, and think of counseling or therapy, however you want to call it, as a personal investment into yourself. Um, try to come in with, you know, an open palm attitude, if you will. Um, the best work happens when you don't try and force it in a certain direction. And a good therapist will make sure you understand that very quickly, that you can't just, you know, dictate how therapy is going to work because then nobody's going to win. Um, and some things that you can take away that I think everyone will benefit in life um, if you're in counseling is you'll learn how to be a better communicator. You'll learn how to set clear boundaries. Um, you'll understand how to regulate your emotions better. Um, and that family member may never actually acknowledge that the change that is occurring in your life has to do with counseling, but the quality of your relationship with that person will change. Um, so that's kind of just my broad address to a person who's kind of navigating through that. Sure. Yeah. Oh, that was helpful. Yeah. And then on the flip side of that, maybe like still within like the whole advice, you know, what would you say thing, but like, what would you say to the Christian who is experiencing an, an existential faith crisis kind of like, um, yeah, in light of their mental state, you know, whether they're considering counseling or in counseling or maybe even dissuaded from counseling and they're mm. kind of wrestling through what it means, you know, for them as a quote unquote faithful Christian or, or a believer. Yeah. This is going to come off maybe a little harsh. I don't, <laughs> um, I think, tough well, love. yeah, this is a little <laughs> bit of tough love. Um, your counselor doesn't have an agenda. So, all that we are here to do is help you understand what you want out of life, what your values are, um, and really empower you to make the decisions to, to really live out those values. Um, that's sometimes where I feel there is a, a true difference between a, a counselor and, say, a, a biblical counselor, newthetic counselors who aren't real counselors. Um, <laughs> oh, wow. Uh, because they, they, have, they do have an agenda in the sense that, like, you know, they are in, very much informed with a biblical view. They're not trying to have you, you know, out in these streets leaving the church and all of that, right? Like, that, like that, that would be something that they would strongly advise against, and that would definitely influence the way that they are counseling you. For us, I'm happy if you stay in the church. I'm... I'm okay if you have to leave the church, take a break. If you take a break forever, okay. Like, that's also okay if that's, uh, like, how you feel at the end of, you know, our work together. Um, 
I just think you need to give yourself a chance to have a space that is non-judgmental, that doesn't have an agenda, like to force you in either direction, um, so that you can actually unpack all of the things that you've probably been carrying for a long time. I'm, I'm imagining in this scenario, you know, someone maybe in their 20s or whatever, mm-hmm. who may have grown up in the church or started going to church and when they were 10 or so and, you know, started, you know, um, doing the regular Sunday school thing, whatever, church thing, youth group thing, um, and is now kind of experiencing, as you just described, an existential faith crisis, for example. Take a break. Like, you've carried a lot with you. I'm not saying everything is a burden. I'm sure a lot of it has been good. But let's unpack everything that you've been carrying and let's see what is helping you, what is creating some dissonance right now. Um, Because let's be honest, you're not the same 10-year-old that walked into the Sunday school that first day. You are now a 20-something-year-old, a 30-year-old who might have a very different perspective on life. And you haven't actually had the chance to acknowledge that things have changed inside of you. Um, And so maybe that's all that it takes. Maybe it's just a moment where you need to be like, oh, I've been carrying a lot of these things that are being lived out of my childhood, but I'm actually a grown man or woman. And I need to just acknowledge that I am a grown man and woman and I feel differently now. Um, And that doesn't mean I can't embrace what I embraced back then, but I need to acknowledge that I'm different. Sure. um, And I've grown and I've changed. Mm. So that's just kind of where I would go with that. Mm. Just give yourself a chance to unpack. Mm. Mm -hmm. Incredible. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) Would you, uh, anything else to to add here luke as we as we close yeah i mean i i feel yeah just pretty grateful that you joined us here yeah. took time out of your busy day to really uh to join us here yeah we really do honestly yeah Thank would you, you are there any resources that uh you can recommend to our our listeners here yeah i have a bunch of different types of resources that i think have been helpful for me. One, because I'm in the field, but even if I wasn't in the field, I would find these very useful and I've recommended them to people who are, you know, just living their lives and have found them good too. So the first one is um, The Collected Schizophrenias by Esme Weijian Wang, um, which is basically a collection of her experiences and struggles with schizoaffective disorder. Um, She was actually working at an Ivy League institution's research lab, um, studying mental illness when she herself was um, starting to experience mental illness herself. Um, And it's a beautiful collection of her essays as she's in the throes of schizoaffective disorder. And I think it's Mm. important for people to read and understand that kind of perspective. Um, The next one is The Choice by Dr. Edith Egger, or Eager, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right. Um, Man's Search for Meaning is by Viktor Frankl. And Making Toast by Roger Rosenblatt, um, which is about grief. And Mm. uh, yeah. Um, some of these can kind of lean a little bit more existential um, in nature, you know, because they're talking about um, grief, meaning making, um, you know, um, yeah, grief and meaning making, I think is a good way to sum it up. Um, and I think those are always good things for people to read about. Great. We'll, we'll uh, add links to that uh, in our show notes. Uh, but yeah, thanks again, Ruth, for joining us and kind of, yeah, helping us talk through important topic uh, you listener thank you for listening and joining us today yeah if you'd like to support us financially you can do that at patreon it's just www.patreon.com slash questions from the pew if you can't support us financially please give us a good rating or review on itunes or whatever platform you're listening on and that will help others find our podcast also please comment and ask questions 
Leave us a short voice message or text message at 312-725-2995. This has been Questions from the Pew, a podcast in the World Outspoken Network. To learn more about World Outspoken and its mission to prepare the Mestizo Church for cultural change, visit www.worldoutspoken.com. For Questions from the Pew, I'm Reichert Zalameta. I'm Lucas Manning. We'll see you next time. Bye.